Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Amanda Carpenter sitting in for Charlie Sykes, who will make his triumphant return tomorrow. Um, But for today, I have a wonderful guest. Her name is Ashley Allison, and she was the National Coalition's Director for the Biden-Harris 2020 Campaign, an Executive Vice President at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and Deputy Director and Senior Policy Advisor for the Obama White House Office of Public Engagement. And how I got to know her was when she became a contributor at CNN. So Ashley, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I don't know if you've been watching the news, but there's wonderful news out of Texas. The governor (laughs) there told everyone that rape is a crime and Texas will work tirelessly to eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas by going out and aggressively arresting and prosecuting them and getting them off the streets. Isn't that wonderful news? I mean, (laughs) I would laugh if it wasn't so sad. You know, yes, rape is a crime. Yes, it has been a crime for some time. But how do you become a rapist? What do you have to do first to be a rapist, I wonder? Rape a woman. I mean, you know, you have to like have. Oh, wait, power does he not issues. know that? Do you exactly. think he, I don't know. He might not know that. Well, I. It's the other question I have for him is: Did you just decide yesterday that you were going to try and get all the rapists off the street when you signed the law into? Um, yeah. Why are you holding out on us? Yeah. Love? Was it okay before then? The law that rapists were walking the street is disgusting. I mean, r- rape is such a aggressive crime of power um and it's not just women that get raped men get raped too but obviously women are the ones that are going to have the child from from, uh of rape and it is a crime but in my personal opinion abortion should not be a crime and that is what his counter argument is and it's not a logical step and um it's quite harmful and i'm 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 afraid for the women of texas and i'm afraid of the precedent that it is going to set in our country as well yeah so what do you think the fallout is going to be because the republicans there now listen i am pro-life and you know when i talk about this issue my opinions are my opinions they're not judgments um because it is so hard to talk about but i think we can easily talk about the political aspects of this and i think most reasonable people agree that if you wanted to do something to advance the pro-life cause um, creating this strange private right of action so that mm-hmm. anybody can go after doctors and women based on nothing more than suspicion is, um, I think the legal term might be bonkers, bananas, nuts, <laughs> crazy, stupid. Um, but what do you think the fallout is going to be in Texas? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. First is I think that a lot of people in this country are pro-life and pro-choice. Um, and what I mean by that is that maybe for their own personal decision, they would not choose abortion, but they ultimately feel like they have their personal choice and that other women should have their personal choice. And so I think oftentimes when we have the conversation about abortion, it becomes a black and white issue. And I think there's a lot of gray in between that this law does not account for. And really the discourse in our society doesn't provide a space for. Um, The backlash I think that we could face is that abortion has become, it's not even just abortion. It's about a woman's 
health choices, about her autonomy over her reproductive health, has become a more favorable topic in this country. Um, it is not just Democrats that want control over their reproductive health. It is often women who want control over their reproductive health. And women make up half of the population and they vote. And so I think that the, the backlash potentially is when you go into a voting booth, you don't know who the person is voting for and why you think this person may vote for a pro-life agenda. At the end of the day, before they cast their ballot, they have to say, do I want choice over my body? And I think that women and men will say, I think women should have their control over their own body and it shouldn't be dictated by the state legislator in Texas and definitely not the governor in Texas. And I think you could see more people skewing for folks who will give them that autonomy, um, which is not uh, Governor Abbott. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think like most people, I have a lot of complicated thoughts about abortion because I, I don't think because this discussion has been so controlled on the political level by men um, mm -hmm. who make these laws, I, I don't even think we have an understanding of what abortion is and what terminology it captured. I mean, to me, it's, you know, the termination of a life that would be viable otherwise, you know, something mm -hmm. that is elective, maybe even for convenience. I mean, you can define it any way you want. Um, but just what has always bothered me so much is that I, I know women who desperately wanted children and it, it didn't work out that way, unfortunately for them. And so they mm -hmm. had to have procedures that many people classify as an abortion when that child was wanted desperately. And the guilt and shame and turmoil and trauma that they are made to feel by so many political actors over a choice that was beyond their control, um, that they never wanted to make, mm -hmm. um, I, I find deeply saddening. And I just think it is such a problem that this conversation is dominated by men who don't even take the time to learn about a woman's, you know, reproductive Body, system right? <laughs> before making laws about it, you know, who have the audacity to stand up and say, well, I'm going to prevent rape by, you know, arresting potential rapists because maybe I have like, what, what is it? You have some secret big brother mind control technology that you're holding. I mean, it's just stupid. It really it's just is. a stupid thing to say. And they're making decisions about this. And this is something that women, you know, hopefully no one wants to deal with this issue. No. And when they do, it's, probably at their lowest point in their lives. And so I wish there'd yeah. be more understanding about that. And if you want to create a culture of life, then you need to support women being able to do that and not, you know, terrorizing them in their worst moments. And, you know, I understand the framing of, you know, women's right to choose, but I just really feel in my heart and hearts that this whole framework lets men off the hook. It lets men off the hook so much because women don't impregnate themselves. They don't do this on their own, but then okay. somehow it becomes this personal burden to shoulder and all the men that make these laws never examine the men's role in this process and how they're permitted to walk away with no consequences, no responsibility and no private right of action against them. Yeah, I totally agree. And I don't know about you, but every time this issue comes up, the thing that is so traumatic for me is having to watch women tell their story about such a personal time in their life when they had to make a tough decision. I have never met one person who has had an abortion or who's considered an abortion 
that did it with a joyful approach. It is a tough personal decision about their health, about their life. And when these conversations, I don't, I don't think it is fair for women to have to be so exposed in order mm-hmm. to convince a man as to why they should have power over their body. But the thing that is so egregious about this law is that, um, I mean, even if you want to get into the anatomy of like the six week window, you often don't know that you're pregnant at six weeks because of the way the menstruation cycle works. But, you know, most of those men probably won't <laughs> yeah. even feel comfortable they, saying it. You know? you know, a baby doctor to explain how that two week window where you yeah. don't just kind of gets tacked on because as a person that has had two children, those extra two weeks matter when it came to 40, 40 weeks and waiting to have that baby. But, you know, I guess that is expecting too much of these guys to figure out. And I mean, the vigilante approach of this, the way that to your point about the private right of action, the way that we are asking citizens now to basically scour the streets looking for people who are helping women get to their reproductive health appointment, it just is very dangerous and is crossing a line. And it it actually is very frustrating that um, the Supreme Court in the you know dark of night just decided not to even make a ruling on this and just let it become law. Um, I think we're entering very dangerous territory in our country. And again, I, I don't want to put this in the terms of Democrat and Republican. I actually think this is bigger than that about what is precedent, what is the law of the land. Um, and I worry about the slippery slope this uh, uh, opens up. Yeah. Well, I think what makes this this fight in particular so much different is that I, for many years, I, I really, I think since I came to Washington in 2005, um, this is the first fight over abortion that's actually real to people. You know, we talk about late term abortion, which, you know, obviously is is horrific, and but I think it's politicized and gets people's emotions going in the worst way that can be manipulative. We can talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, but now we're really drilling down into, okay, six weeks. Um, any random guy, MAGA, Facebook, reply guy on the internet can go after a doctor on the suspicion that some woman had an abortion. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's really real. I mean, you're you're on television, you're in public life. There's creepy people out there. Absolutely. And it would take nothing more than like, hey, you look like you you were plumping up and then lost some weight. Maybe I should ask your doctor what's going on. Right? What about HIPAA? Out you know? there who will do that. They will Absolutely. rifle through your personal life, every picture of you that ever existed on the internet, and use that as a basis to say and do whatever they want. And so this this thing is is real. Um but I just, you know, if we want to put our political hats on, is this a fight the public wants to have necessarily? I mean, it's such a you know, this well, isn't you know, an issue people get excited and happy to talk about. It isn't, but I think that there are some concentric circles to this, and one of them being the courts. Um, you know, when we, during the Trump years, he was so successful nominating over 200 federal lifetime appointments to the, the judiciary and having three Supreme Court appointments. Now, everybody flash remind back to 2016 when Scalia passed away unexpectedly. Merrick Garland was nominated. 
Mitch McConnell would not uh, uh, do a confirmation, even though he pushed through confirmations during the Trump era because he wanted people to have an election. We know that historically conservatives, when they are voting, they think about the courts, whereas progressives and Democrats, it is changing, but they haven't always kept the courts in the front of their mind. So if you are thinking um, not just in a direct strategic way, but in a collateral way, this is an issue that can really rile up the Republican base, that base that, you know, when Trump was running, he promised he would put pro-lifers on the bench for this moment exactly. So I think that it's not going, you know, when you look at the spectrum of voters, I think Democrats um, will overwhelmingly say this bill should not be law, that people should have, women should have a right to choose. I think the moderate Republicans will want, you know, some exceptions to be in the law and think that this law is too egregious. But that 40%, 35% of Trump's base um, that they are really trying to get riled up, this does speak to them. Um, and so I think that that is the portion of the population they are really hoping to rile up ahead of the midterms. But it could backfire in some of those seats um, and allow Democrats to continue to have the House and, you know, slide by with this very slim margin they have in the Senate. But one more point on this is that it also just is not the federal elections that I think this is going to have an impact. We saw in the 2020 election that while Trump didn't win down the ballot in state legislators with um, city council members, that it uh, they might have voted Democrat at the top of the ticket, but they still voted Republican at the bottom. And so I think when you look at the, the cycle about uh, state houses and keeping them conservative, this type of bill could actually uh, bode well for Republicans um, in the midterms. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's another issue happening in Texas right now. It's, it's amazing. Um, in that Abbott signed that uh, voting restriction bill law. And, um, you know, I don't know what your feelings are on that. I, I assume that you're not for it. Um, right. But it strikes me, you know, Biden people in the Biden White House have been telling reporters, well, they're not maybe, you know, they don't like these voter restriction bills moving across the states, but they feel like they can out-organize whatever Republicans do on the ground. Um, What do you think about that assessment? So I'm an organizer by training. Um, It's how I started into uh, politics. I was organizing before I even realized organizing was a thing. And I think the power of the people and the power of the movement is overwhelming. And while it may be possible for organizers to knock on every door and call every voter and and register every voter, and they may have the ability to do it, it is not fair to require them to have to do it to overcome suppressive laws. And so I don't think the defense to a suppressive law where um, it bans drive-through voting or it bans Sunday voting or you can't hand out water, which was a provision that was going to be in the the Georgia bill, um, should be law and then tell other people to out-organize. We do not tell, and this is, you know, it's not, a lot of times I look at these issues in a couple different ways. I look into a class perspective. A lot of people who are working folks need flexibility in the voting laws, vote by mail, because they work during the hours or they don't have child care during the hours when they could exercise their democratic right. I look at it through an issue of race. We know historically in this country that Black people, that Brown people have been um, discriminated against, that we're not given the franchise. Um, 
And I look at it through the lens of power. It is who do we want to have power? Do we actually want the diverse nature of this country to be able to express their right to vote? When I was in law school, I remember um, Myrna Perez, who was one of my first supervisors, who just was confirmed to the Second Circuit Court. Um, she told me, she's a civil rights lawyer, she told me um, that we were looking at a case in Colorado that said that somebody's vote was not counted. Now, the race was over. The person that we think the individual voted for had won the race. And I asked her, well, why are we trying to litigate this case? And she said, it doesn't matter who they voted for, and it doesn't matter the outcome of the election. People who are eligible to vote have the right to vote, and it should be counted. And that is what these voter suppression laws do not do. I don't care if you're voting for Democrat or Republican, but I want you to have equal access to the ballot. I want you to be able to register. And then whoever wins, wins. But these bills are strangling our democracy in an effort to allow for these uh, abortion bills to come into place, allow for people um, like myself not to have access to the franchise as equally as uh, maybe one of my white female counterparts. And it's not American. Well, I will take it back. There is, there are like historical references where it is American. <laughs> Not the good ones. <laughs> it, it actually is. I would take that back. But it shouldn't be the America we want to be. We should strive for a greater um, democracy, a stronger democracy. And after January 6th, we have no choice but to ensure that we keep our democracy strong, not for just our generation, but for generations to come. You know, I couldn't agree more. I just look back at the 2020 election and see nothing but success amid extraordinary conditions and extraordinary amount of testing and audits and investigations. And you just look at all the ways that everyone expanded voting options, even in ruby red Republican states because of the pandemic, Um, you know, mailing out ballot applications so people would have the choice to vote by home if they wanted to. Um, expanding early voting in-person options, if that's your choice. But, hey, we're going to give you some more days to get to the polls. And even, you know, drop boxes, which I think are a great solution, and drive-through voting, which, you know, if for somebody that might have kids in the car or might be disabled, that is a wonderful option. And just so you know, when I voted, it was raining that day. It wasn't pleasant standing out in the rain. I much would have rather sat in my car, scrolled on Twitter, (laughs) listened to SiriusXM while I waited to drop off my ballot. But it seems to me the Republicans in Texas really didn't like that. And they really didn't like it in Harris County, which oddly enough, even though Trump won Texas by five points, which isn't a big margin for Republicans, but it's still, you know, a pretty healthy margin. Mm -hmm. um, That's a place that Joe Biden carried. So is it about the drive through voting or is it about the fact that Joe Biden won? It's about not wanting people who they, they do not think will vote for them to vote. And I and I would I am willing to have a policy debate over and over again. And if you went out a voter on a policy debate, fine. But if you don't it's if you win because a portion of the people who were not gonna vote for you registered and then they were purged off the rolls 
or let's say they got on the rolls and then they registered and because um, you didn't think they had the right signature match um, by a hand, by a, by an unprofessional. That to me just seems the strangest thing to have someone look at a signature match and Uh, think like, somehow that is better than doing mail-in ballots where they have your tax base, they know where you live, but you're going to look at a signature. (laughs) That just seems to me like the silliest thing. It's absurd. It is not about, it is not um, the marketplace of ideas that people are trying to have right now and, and really have a discourse on. And let me just be honest, we need that right now in our country. We are seeing global warming. We are seeing New York City underwater, over 50 people dying because of a, a hurricane. We're seeing aggressive abortion laws about women's rights to choose. We're seeing um, an economy that is trying to stabilize, but is struggling um, as people are coming back to work. We're in the middle of a pandemic, still in a pandemic, um, almost two years later. We need a marketplace of ideas right now in this country. But instead, we are trying to stifle people's voices and prevent folks from being able to really have a discourse and really have um, an engaged democracy. And that is that is actually how countries fail. Um, that is when we when we when we only want some ideas to be heard. That is the dangerous part. Um, and that you know, like I don't think maybe four years ago, you and I might have been having this conversation and could. Um, just because of the political climate or maybe eight years ago. But we need people who identify as Democrat and identify as Republican to have this conversation and be able to be respectful um, of each other's views for, for, you know, a greater tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk more about your working experience because you have such, and I mean, you, you know so much about this and as a Republican, you know, sitting, you know, on the other side of the aisle uncomfortably, um, with how my party is going. There's just a lot I have trouble understanding about what's going on the Democratic side. And that actually happens to be within your expertise because it has <laughs> to do with keeping the coalition together. Now, listen, I understand uh, Joe Biden has unified government, but a very tenuous hold on power, uh, 50-50 Senate, eight seat majority in the House. But the Democratic coalitions just... It, it seems crazy to me that, you know, say on like the infrastructure bill, everyone is still fighting about how to spend trillions of dollars rather than just taking the win. And so I just I'd, I'd like to know what you think are the important power centers of the coalition, who Biden has to keep together um, and, and what what do you think he's looking at? Because there's so he has such a heavy full plate right now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how he prioritizes. How does he prioritize? Well, a couple of thoughts. So just in regards to the coalition, I think that historically, um, African-Americans, young people, low-income individuals, um, people of color predominantly vote more so on the Democratic side. But I think, um, and there is sometimes this expectation that they will just always show up and always vote. But that is not the case. Just because somebody might support maybe your policy ideas, part of the coalition is not just having them support your ideas, but to actually show up and vote. So while they may still be a Democratic voter, you need to make sure you engage them and you persuade them. And sometimes it's a policy persuasion, but sometimes it's a turnout persuasion. Um, I do think 
that, you know, there are going to be parts of the coalition in 2020 that showed up, or excuse me, in 2022 that showed up in 2020 um, that might not show up again in 2022. And it's because whether um, economic strife, uh, policy differences. And so it is, you know, I think people think, oh, there's just all these progressives and they just show up and they're like brainwashed. It really isn't. It is a very thoughtful approach. The other thing, though, is that in 2020, we made some promises to the historic amount of people who showed up. And we talked about student debt. We talked about domestic workers. We talked about immigration. We talked about climate. We talked about the economy and the pandemic. And they showed up with a belief that if they elected Democrats, we would deliver. And so the one thing that I would... um, that I think in politics on the Republican side and the Democrat side is that we often live in this scarcity mindset that we do actually have to prioritize and that we couldn't figure out a government where we could actually do it all. Where in two years, while Democrats have the White House, House and Senate, that maybe we could get a climate bill passed, an immigration bill passed, um, a covert relief package passed, an infrastructure bill passed. But instead, Washington has always lived in this idea that like, oh, you get one big policy win in every two years and people should be satisfied. Well, I think the American people, regardless of what uh, side of the aisle you sit on, they're kind of sick of it. They kind of people are like, Washington isn't working. It is broken. I think that's why Trump had so much traction about drain the swamp. Now, he became a part of it, clearly. Um, (laughs) But you know, we, I think we have to have this ambition to get these policy ideas delivered. Now, Joe Biden is, has a, almost an insurmountable task ahead of him because even though the numbers count with people with D's by their name of having the majority, not all the people that are elected are really behaving like a Democrat, Joe Manchin, uh, Kristen Sinema. And I believe there are probably more in the Democratic Party that aren't as vocal, but are teetering on some of the spending patch- packages and filibuster and whatnot that haven't, you know, Joe Manchin and Cinema may be carrying their water. Um, but what I think is possible, and I am someone who is like, you know, push, push, push. What I, I think is actually happening is President Biden has, has relationships with Joe Manchin. He is giving him time to figure it out. But I think if the clock runs short and he can't move his agenda, he will put some pressure on that we haven't seen right now. I, you know, I don't always agree with everything Joe Biden said. I didn't agree before he ran for president while I was working on his campaign and now, but he has a a way about him that is patient um, and tolerant that I think we are seeing right now in a moment where some of us want it to be a little accelerated. And if we can get one of these big packages delivered, um, I think it will go very, very well in the midterms and, you know, even in 2024, because people will feel some uh, extreme and needed relief. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I just really think the COVID overhang has knocked everything off course. And then the kind of abrupt pullout in Afghanistan, which, you know, I don't think anybody said that was handled great, Mm -hmm. um, has has really thrown him off course. Um, But he has, he has had some wins. Um, what, what I would be worried about as a Democrat, and again, I'm not, so nobody has to listen to me on this, is that, <laughs> you know, and some, they spent, they passed a big, spent, you know, we've spent trillions of dollars in COVID relief between Trump and Biden, like five trillion mm-hmm. so far. And there was all this, you know, excitement over putting 
uh, money directly in people's bank accounts for families. And I'm not sure he's gotten any political benefit from that. I mean, I, I don't see people thanking Joe Biden for that. I mean, maybe maybe I'm missing it um, because the pandemic is just such a heavy overhang that we can't get out of. And I, you know, I I'm worried that we're spending all kinds of money already and it's not paying off for anyone because nobody's happy. Well, I think uh, I agree with you in a bit, but I, I do think people on the ground struggling who were struggling before the pandemic actually felt the relief of the American Rescue Plan. Um, I think that they were, you know, able to stay in their homes, able to put food on people's table. Is the pandemic looming over us still? Yes. But some of the pain that we're experiencing from the pandemic is not for lack of action on the Democrats. And I do think people experience some relief. I'm interested. We we are expecting to hear him roll out a new phase of um, his COVID plan. The reason why we, we are struggling to jump up the economy really is because of the pandemic, is because of this ridiculous controversy over where whether to wear a mask or not, is like people's distrust or disbelief um, to to take the vaccine, which I find. I will say personally, when the vaccine first came out, I was a bit hesitant and I wanted to do my research. I now have since had the vaccine. I've been able to get some of my life back and going on flights and being out and socializing and seeing my family. But you know what is crazy to me is that the thing that is hanging over us is the pandemic. And there are so many people who have distrust in the pandemic. They're the same people who didn't believe there was a virus, don't trust the vaccine, but then take a heart dewormer. Um, to protect themselves. It's like the logical jump doesn't just make sense. So I think that he he may roll out some mandates tomorrow, some additional spending, some requirements that will not be popular. But I think if it can break the fever literally and figuratively Mm -hmm. around the pandemic so that by January of 22, spring of 22, we are literally out of our homes um, and maybe can stop wearing these masks. I think people will appreciate that, even if in the media there is great frustration about some of the decisions he's making, because something's got to give here. We cannot live yeah. our lives like this forever. Yeah, I think this is, you know, it's not Joe Biden's fault. We're in this scenario, but he is president and it is kind of on him to find a way to fix it. And I just look at the numbers and it is such a failure of our society, not yeah. not the political system. I'm, I'm talking about society here that... We have access to the vaccine and some areas are seeing their highest death cases ever over the course of the pandemic. And I was just thinking the other day that when I talk to my kids, they are eight and nine about this time. We're not going to talk about the pandemic. We're going to talk about the COVID years. This is our second summer. They're going into their second school year. We're potentially facing our second holiday season, you know, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, whatever, birthday parties. In the pandemic. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it makes me really sad. And I I think a lot of people feel this and it's not Joe Biden's fault, but it plays into the polling and the whole political system. It's like, we don't get much time, especially with children. You don't get that many summers. (laughs) I'm going to cry a little bit. Yeah, You just, they're special and you want to make the most of it. And then going into the holiday season again, you know, do you want to lose another one? And so I really hope they get a hold of this thing because we need guidance for kids who aren't vaccinated. I know so many families who have done the right thing the whole way, have been so mm-hmm. diligent, 
and like you're just still getting punished all the time. And the testing, I feel like we've given up on testing. Over-the-counter tests are hard to come by. Um, getting in-person tests, there's long lines. And so, yeah, he absolutely does need to do something. I don't know what it's going to be, but he needs to be successful, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. And we need to be successful. It is it is a matter of public will right now. I um, And I think it is going to require... You know, he can get on his bully pulpit over and over, but it is going to require people like you, people like me who understand the science, believe the science and have those tough conversations with people. And it's not again, it's not a Republican Democrat thing. It is a there are people of color, there are poor people, there are rich people, there are white people, there are black people who are not doing what they need to do right now around the vaccine. And we have to be willing to have tough conversations with them. Um to get us to a point where we turn the corner and it will unfortunately probably fall if we don't fall on Joe Biden, it's his fault, but it's not, it's every individual's responsibility to do what is right right now. And I think whatever he's going to decide, he's not going to be able to make everyone happy. Um, But I will tell you, I would, I would support him or any person at this point who would make some really tough calls so that in two to three months, we can, see this behind us because we have access to we have we have all the access we need now it is not an issue of access it is an issue of will um and you know the question is can america rise to the challenge and i hope we do yeah and what you know as you were talking i'm thinking about like you were a part of this campaign that won in this environment you know you you guys were nimble enough and i you know, a lot of us at the Bulwark talk about how Biden pretty much had to get it perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Crazy circumstances. He won the popular vote overwhelmingly, but still only won that electoral college by 44,000 votes in Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia. And so if you could just look back on that campaign and tell me, where, what do you think were the hardest choices he made during that time? Like, what, what do you remember about that campaign? Like, oh my God, that worked. Or what were you most afraid of? Um, because, you know, we're going right back into campaign season in 2022. Yeah. Well, that campaign was very challenging. Most of us never left our homes, never met our team. Part of, if you never worked on a campaign, part of the, the joy of a campaign is being in the office, getting to meet your colleagues, going out for drinks or dinner after, you know, you know a very, very long day, early mornings, late nights, and really building this bond and everything had to be virtually. And I think, you know, one of the challenges was that we had to be responsible. People made fun of Joe Biden for not going out and not, but that was what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to be social, social distancing. We were supposed to be staying home as much as possible. And while, you know, we saw the opponent Trump going out, having massive rallies and people catching COVID and then seeing spikes, we didn't do that. We, um, we did a lot of things virtually and the, you know, the best thing about a politician sometimes is being able to shake their hand and look them in the eye and tell them what you expect from them. And that, that actually didn't happen. I also think, you know, this goes back to building the coalition is that we were able to expand the coalition. I ultimately believe that it was the base of the democratic party that carried Joe Biden the Senate and the House over to victory, but we were able to get some Republicans to support us um, and people who had voted for Trump uh, the first go round and who wanted to 
vote for um, Joe Biden for various reasons um, in 2020. And it was because we spoke to them. It was because we were willing to meet them where they are and tell them we might not always agree, but we will have an honest and frank conversation. And that's ultimately what people want. You know, they want someone they can trust and believe in. Um, we, I'm sure the history books will write about these campaigns um, in history because it was very, very challenging. I would never want to do it again. And <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, um, but it also, you know, provided some flexibility. And I think that, you know, I try and constantly find the silver lining. And even in work is that sometimes, you know, people, moms who had kids who couldn't like uproot their whole family and move to Philadelphia, which you would have had to done um, any other campaign cycle, were able to have very senior jobs and different roles in the campaign because we did work remotely. So there were some bonuses of, you know, being confined to your home. But overall, it was hard. It was grueling. Um, but we knew we had no choice every single day when we woke up and we just had only could open our computer screen. We knew we needed to get to the other side of this um, for various issues, um, just for the integrity of the office. But man, that campaign was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also worked in the Obama White House. And I am just curious if you picked up on any notable difference differences between how Obama and Biden approached and talked to their coalitions? Because, I mean, it's largely the same, but it is a little bit different because Biden, you know, Obama had all the excitement and he was such a charismatic speaker. And mm -hmm. Biden is you know, leaning on a different set of experiences, maybe reaching out to Republicans a little bit more. I'm not sure about that. Uh, what, what are the differences that you see? Well, first and foremost, you know, Obama is a black man and Joe Biden is yeah, not. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so because of that, you just have a different lived experience. Um, to grow up in this country as a person of color, you have very different experiences as someone who doesn't. Not better or worse, just different. Um, and so he, Obama, was able to bring a different vantage point into the White House um, than Joe Biden was. I think one of the reasons why Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris was to have that different vantage point come into the White House with him. He is very much aware and has spoken about how he is somewhat of the bridge candidate, the person who wants to hand wants to keep our democracy in place, but ultimately hand it the the torch over to the next generation um, that we are a part of. So I See, think I'm, I'm that next generation. Who makes you most excited? about the future, say, you know, in the next 10 or 20 years on the horizon? Oh, I get asked this question a lot. And I don't, I don't even look at it through like an elected lens. I look at it through mm -hmm. just like everyday people. I, I hope, I hope that by the time, you know, we're 20 years from now, the people who represent our country are everyday folks. They all don't have Ivy League degrees. They all haven't worked in corporate America, but they're people who were farmers. There are people who are school teachers. I, I love this wave. And on both sides of the aisle, I love this wave of people who have lived experience and says like, this bill won't work because if it did, like, you know, this is how actually um, childcare works in the everyday for someone who never had a child. Like if you're making policy that doesn't actually ever impact you, that's a problem. So I am I am encouraged by this new wave of electeds and, and candidates who are running who have an actual lived experience. Um, 
Yeah, I but like Katie I mean, Porter. Katie Porter is a smarty tarty. I think she has a pretty oh, extensive tough. degree, but I, yeah. I, I adore her. Uh, I, like I, I think she brings it from a I, real world perspective. Every, yeah. you know, every single hearing, and she just, you know, she has a Breaks sensibility about her um, yes. that is, is really unique. I like I like Katie Porter. I like Ayanna Presley. Um, who else? Uh, Amy Klobuchar seems like she, you know, she, I, of course she ran for president. Everybody knows who she is, but I've just been watching, um, how she has been, you know, kind of working behind the scenes, but also in front of the camera and messaging things very carefully. She seems Mm -hmm. to me like such an unacknowledged workhouse workhorse for the democratic party. Um, you know, we got into like all this drama with her and Pete during the campaign and that just seems silly, but you know, maybe she has the vibe as like the student council president, but maybe they're the student council president because she's really smart and she knows what the heck she's doing and has a plan and, you know, wants to get things done. Is that bad? <laughs> it's not bad. And actually, I think one of um, the moments that I had gr- the greatest amount of admiration for her was when she decided not to contend to be the vice presidential pick. She realized that we needed a diverse slate of candidates. Um, and she stepped down. And I think that like if more leaders had the courage to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be remain a senator and I'm going to create a space for other folks. I think we would be in a lot better case instead of everybody thinking they're like the perfect person for the job. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have not really been the biggest cheerleader of Amy Klobuchar, to be honest. <laughs> I don't have exactly to be like no cheerleader. <laughs> I'm a kind of, I might sort of take up the cause. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I adore uh, Senator Warnock. I got to work with him very closely when we were in the Obama White House and he was, he still is, but when he was only serving as the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church and fighting for voting rights. Um, so it was very exciting to hear about his Senate race. And Dude, is he, he going to be able to handle Herschel Walker when Herschel Walker oh my gets going gosh. campaign through you you want to go down I mean, and work but, that race? Oh, this is like a different, that's probably like a different show, but I'm like, come on. Like really like out of everyone in Georgia, you're going to run Herschel Walker. Why? Because he's a black Texas man. In Georgia. Texas and yeah, Georgia. Texas and Georgia. It's like, have a little depth here, you know? Um, obviously I love Stacey Abrams. I am a big fan girl of her. I love her bold and audacious ways. I think, you know, it is some, it is says something about a leader who, runs and is not successful in the race for whatever reason you know everyone has their takes I think voter suppression has something to do with why she was not successful for her gubernatorial race but she didn't get out the fight she said you know what I might not be governor but I'm gonna like fight 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 and make sure our democracy is um is is safe and expansive for everyone and so I I commend her leadership um I'm inspired by Vice President Harris obviously to break the glass ceiling and the way she has is something that, you know, uh, it, for every, for every woman, regardless of your politics, should be inspired by, um, and, and teach our little girls the lesson of, you know, perseverance. Um, yeah, well, quick, quick, because I know you have to run, but there is, mm-hmm. there is a race coming up in California. Are you, oh, are yeah. you nervous at all about the recall of Gavin Newsom? Do you think Larry Elder is our next governor for the great state of California? You know, I try not to uh, talk about places where I haven't really like surveyed 
the land and really have a, a rich knowledge of the people of California. But what I will say is this. I, I do think that there is a chance that Elder could be the next governor. I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's because of the marketplace of ideas. I don't think it's because people really believe their policy. I think it's because people are exhausted. People may be a little checked out and people just don't show up. And that's a part of the coalition work that we have to continue to do as Democrats is that we cannot just expect people to show up because we deserve to win. We have to convince them to show up. And so I don't I I worry about what it what signals it sends to where people really are in this country. I don't think people overwhelmingly support Larry Elder's beliefs and um, ideologies, but I do think it can be a, and if, if we, if Newsom does get recalled, it will be a wake up call to Democrats about the work, the quote unquote out organizing we need to do, um, for the 2022 election, because people are tired, people want change, um, and Democrats can be that change, but we got to keep them engaged. So we will see, I mean, God hope for our country. Um, yeah, well, the lesson I take from that is if you're a right wing radio guy and you spend enough time on the airwaves building up your name ID, you can probably have a 25% chance of being the governor of California. So there you go. Ashley Allison, you're a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope to see you in person sometime soon. Thanks for having me. Take care.